Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about the Angmar Wars. This has been a long time coming. This is one of my favorite parts of the Legendarium, and... You know, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to go about it because it, it's it's basically like telling a long history, but it's, it's such a fascinating and rich history, and I think you'll enjoy it just about as much as I did. So yeah, without further ado, let's jump right into it. All right, now, I have touched on a lot of this content in other podcasts, but I'm going to give you a brief review over everything. We're going to take it from the top one more time. I won't get too into it, but for those of you who haven't listened to other episodes like the one that I did on why Aragorn is not on the throne at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. I kind of touch into the uh, the Northern Kingdom and the line of kings as it is broken in that podcast. So just going to do like a brief summary of, of how the Northern Kingdom gets established and how it ends up fighting this war with Angmar and when Gondor, which is the Southern Kingdom, ends up getting involved. So you have Elendil. He is the leader of the faithful. He escapes to Middle-earth. He has two sons, Isildur and Anarion. You know Isildur if you've seen the movies. He has two sons. They get separated. Elendil establishes the northern kingdom of Arnor, which is in the north of Middle-earth. It's it's like by Linden and Rivendell. And then you have Isildur and Anarion, and they arrive in the south. This is because a storm separates the father from the sons. A storm separates them, Isildur and Anarion, they land in the south and they establish the southern kingdom of Gondor. Now they begin communication between the two kingdoms and Elendil is, um, the political situation ends up being Elendil rules the, as the high king of both Arnor and Gondor. And Isildur and Anarion are called kings, but they're basically co-kings under Isildur ruling the southern kingdom in their father's stead. Probably would have been more accurate to call them princes, but they're referred to as kings in the lore. So you have Arnor in the north, Gondor in the south. The War of the Last Alliance begins. Elendil is killed. Isildur, being the oldest brother, takes up his father's place on the throne as the high king of both Arnor and Gondor. Now, it wouldn't have mattered anyway because his younger brother Anarion is killed uh, during the assault on Barad-dûr, so it's not like the throne was contested or anything, but Isildur was meant to rule both Arnor and Gondor together as a united kingdom. However, he has to go up to the north and, you know, set his set his affairs. Uh, claim his throne. So he sets his his nephew, the son of Anarion, as a king of Gondor. He gives him control over it. He gives him rule over it with him still as the high king. He goes to the north. We all know the story. He gets killed on the way there. And then rule of Arnor passes to his son. But at this point, his son is still very young. So his son doesn't really lay claim to Gondor in the south. So what ends up happening is the heirs of Isildur end up ruling in the north and the heirs of Anarion end up ruling in the south. And that's where the break happens in between the two kingdoms. All right, there's my brief summary of, of how that gets established there. I hope, uh, I hope that was clear and uh, I didn't go too fast. So in the north, you have Isildur's son, Valandil. He finally grows up and uh, he comes of age and is able to take the throne. There is... The line of kings goes like this in the north. Valandil, his son, Eldakar, takes the throne. And that's in 339 of the Third Age. Then his son, the son after Eldakar, Arantar, that's 435. 
Tarsil, 515. Terondor, 602. Valandor, 652. Elendor, 777. And then Erendor, 861. Okay, so we have Erendor in 861, who is, at this point, he is the 10th king of the Northern Kingdom, if you count Elendil and Isildur. So the heir of Elendil, Elendil, this gentleman by the name of Erendor, this is when the trouble starts happening in the Northern Kingdom. Up until this point, 861 of the Third Age, so if you're counting by years, the Third Age begins with year one, um, when Isildur cuts the ring from Sauron's hand, and he's destroyed. That's what starts year one of the Third Age. So we are 861 years into the Third Age at this point, and the Northern Kingdom has been healthy. You know, it's been, it's been a good kingdom. It's a, it's a noble line. You know, there's, there's, more, there's more of concentrated Dunedain blood in the north than there is in the south in Gondor, even though Gondor still has a high quantity of it at this point. Uh, the northern kingdom always gives the impression of being a little bit more noble than Gondor throughout its, its existence, even though Gondor is clearly more powerful through most of its history. But yeah, this is we don't have a whole lot of writing about what's going on in the northern kingdom during, you know, in between Isildur's son, Valandil, and this gentleman, Erendur, who becomes king in, in 861. We don't know a whole lot. Uh, not a whole lot is written. You know, I'm getting all this from the appendices. So we're basically just left with the impression of everything's kind of been fine. You know, nothing's nothing's been going on. The line of kings has been healthy, strong. But with this gentleman, Erendor, in 861, this is when the problems start happening. Erendor, he has quarrelsome sons, sons who are jealous with one another, and he decides that instead of creating a potential conflict upon his death, he is going to divide his kingdom. He is going to divide Arnor into three kingdoms and split it amongst his three sons. So he gives Arthodyne which is basically, that's going to be the strongest kingdom. Arthodyne, it, it's going to include the capital, um, and he is going to give it to his son, uh, Amleth. So he grants Arthodyne, the largest, strongest kingdom that has the capital in it, to his oldest son, Amleth. Now, the second part of his kingdom, which I'm only left to assume that he gave to his second oldest son, because this is definitely a better deal than what the last son gets, is the kingdom of Cardolan. Now, Cardolan is the southern part of Arnor. It's it's a very noble part of Arnor. It contains what eventually becomes referred to as the Barrow Downs, but it's a burial place for a lot of the kings and princes of Arnor that have come before. So it's a it's a it's a very important area, and this is granted. I believe, is granted to the second son. Uh, and then there is a third kingdom, which is the kingdom in the east. It's the very east of the kingdom, and it's, in my opinion, and probably the opinion of everybody else who's a big Tolkien fan, that this is the this is the worst deal. Whoever the brother is that got this kingdom, he got the raw deal out of it all. And this is the kingdom of Rudar. Uh, now, Rudar is in, like I said, it's in the, it's in the eastern part. It's kind of you're getting up into the hills. Um, the land is of less quality, and we are given the impression as the uh, as the reader that this land is basically a Dunedain nobility. 
So you have a Numenorian, a nobility of a Numenorian blood basically ruling over a population that is mostly low men of Middle-earth because it's in the most eastern part of the kingdom. So keep that in mind because that's going to be very important going forward. All right, so just a quick recap on everything that I've just said. You have the Numenorian kingdoms in exile. Gondor in the south, Arnor in the north. Gondor right now, they're strong. They're healthy. Arnor in the north, they there's there's infighting between brothers, between princes, right? So the kingdom in the north splits. You have Arnor splitting into Arthedyne, Rudaur, and Cardolan. Three kingdoms in the north of Numenorian exiles, and one kingdom in the south, Gondor of Numenorian exiles. Enter Sauron. By this point, Sauron is kind of materializing again. I believe I might be wrong on this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm not. I'm not remembering dates right now. But I believe at this point, Sauron is either he's either cooking in Rune or he has taken up residence in Dol Guldur. I, I'm, I'm not sure if he's gotten there at this point, but we do know that he is moving again and he is directing the Lord of the Nazgul once again, the Witch King, who is not yet called the Witch King. He is just the Lord of the Nazgul at this point. He tasks the Witch King with bringing down the kingdoms of men. The kingdoms of Arthedain, Cardolin, and Rudar in the north, or Gondor in the south. Now, the Witch King analyzes the political situations of the south in Gondor, and he looks at Gondor and is like, all right, they're strong. I'm, I'm not going to be able to make headway in Gondor right now. They're too powerful, too united. But in the north, I can do some damage. Because in the north, there's political infighting. In the north, I can cause some issues. So what the Lord of the Nazgul does is he takes up residence in a place called Angmar, which is north of Arnor. It's, it's in the section of Middle-earth where you're kind of getting into the beginning of the northern wastes, which are, um, which is basically, you know, it's the northern part of the world. It's where, it's around where Morgoth used to take up residence. It's a, it's, Morgoth basically owned the north, you know, in the first age. So the north is, is a very, it's a very evil place still. It's where evil likes to collect and fester, where it can kind of get away from the parts of the world that are warm and in light. So he takes up residence in Angmar, which is the beginning of the northern waste north of Arnor, which is now divided into these three kingdoms. And he begins to, from, he, he creates for himself a, a capital called Karndum, in the north and he begins to create trouble for the men of the north and it's also around this time that the last descendants of Isildur so the brothers who were given Cardolin and Rudar to rule their descendants have died out so there is no longer a descendant of Isildur ruling as king over Rudar or Cardolin at all so because of this, Argaleb, he is the king of Arthedyne. He lays claim over the kingdoms of Rudaur and Cardolin for this reason. He says, okay, 
um, none of my relatives or descendants of Isildur are controlling these provinces anymore. So it's time for us to take control over them again because they belong to descendants of Isildur. Cardolan, which is the more noble of the separated kingdoms, accepts this. They they want to honor Isildur. They want to honor their traditions. So they pledge fealty to the king of Arthedain, Argaleb. Rudar in the east, which again... I remind you, most of their population at this point, and, and this is all stuff I gleam, it's not like Tolkien says this flat out, but it's implicated in the text, in my opinion, that most of their population are low men of Middle-earth who are not of Numenorean bloodline. Uh, men who are probably more related to men of Dunlin than they are uh, anyone of the Dunedain. R- this kingdom with this population in the east, they resist this claim from Argaleb. They do not bend the knee to Argaleb, and they don't care whether or not an heir of Isildur rules them. So they resist Argaleb, and they actually join forces with the witch king who has established himself in Angmar at this point. The lord of the Nazgul has established his uh, creepy little evil northern kingdom, and he has been causing problems on a smaller scale for the men of the north but it, but they know he's there and he they call him the witch king at this point right they they know that there's some mysterious character that performs black magic who has taken up residence in Angmar. And Rudar, at this point, decides to join forces with them because they do not want to bend the knee to the king in Arthedain, who claims to be the heir of Isildur. They don't, they don't care. They would rather be independent. So they join with Angmar and they actually attack Arthedain together. And Rudar also, at this point, uh, has a, uh, a very charismatic man of the hills who uh, he's basically like a a, a chieftain uh, not of Numenorean blood who lays claim to the kingship of Rudar and chases out all of the the Numenorean nobility that had been ruling there so Rudauer, in an effort to maintain their independence they join in with this attack with Angmar on Arthedain which is now united with Cardolan. They, they are now one kingdom against Angmar and Rudauer. Argaleb, the king who had laid claim to the other two kingdoms, he dies in this battle against Rudauer and Angmar. It's, it's an assault coming from the direction of the north and the east, and he falls in battle. And his son, Arvaleg, takes power. And he is able to, with the help, he gets back up from elves from Linden and the, uh, again, Cardolan has now joined in the fight on the side of Arthedain. So he has help there and he is able to push the Witch King back. So Arvaleg is esta- is kind of able to uh, bring Angmar into check and he establishes this this time where his kingdom at least is is not being bothered and he thinks that there is some time of peace but what's really going on right now actually is Rivendell is being besieged by the Witch King at this time. We don't know much about this battle. We just know that it probably happened and Elrond was able to push these forces of Angmar back because we don't necessarily have an account of the battle, we just know that it took place. The Witch King was able to find Imladris, or Rivendell, and lay siege to it, but it was an unsuccessful siege. So there's this time of peace. 
Arvaleg, son of Argaleb, is able to push Angmar back, and Rivendell is able to resist this siege. Um, but then in 1409, there is an invigorated attack from the Witch King. After this time of peace, Angmar attacks what's called Amansul, and this is a fortress you know, sort of in the east, it's it's kind of where Arthodyne meets Rudar at the border. And this is actually what ends up becoming Weathertop. So if you remember, for those of you who have just seen the movies, where Frodo is stabbed by the Witch King in the first movie, and he almost becomes a wraith, this tower, Weathertop, used to be a great fortress called Amansul. And it's at this point it's a great fortress of men and the witch king lays siege to it in the north and he burns it to the ground it's it's a total loss for the men who are there um arvaleg the king at this point arvaleg son of argaleb he is slain so it's it's a devastating loss however palantir you remember there's a bunch of seeing stones that are across Middle-earth still at this point. The Palantir that was in that fortress of Amansul survives, and it is whisked away and taken to the capital of Arthodyne at Fornost in the west. So the Witch King, you know, he wanted to take the fortress, but he really wanted to take that, that Palantir that he knew was inside the fortress, and he doesn't get to do it. However, he does slay the king. So huge victory for Angmar. They destroyed it. That's why it ends up becoming just ruins, which we know as Weathertop in The Lord of the Rings. And it's called Weathertop because it was its ruins on top of what used to be a tower in the Weather Hills. So Weather Hills, Weathertop. So at this point, we have lost the king. Um, That king's name was, as I said, Arvaleg. His son, Arafor takes the throne. Now, Arafor is able to, even though they have this devastating loss of the fortress of Amansul, he teams up with Círdan. Círdan, the shipwright, the elf. Círdan sends reinforcements, and they are able to, both of them, kind of keep the Witch King's advance in check. So they stop them there at Fornos. They stop them from, or not at Fornos, at, uh, at Amansul, at Weathertop. They stop them from gaining more ground. And it's also at this point, Elrond brings aid from Galadriel and pushes back the advance that Angmar has made. So, all right, Fortress gets destroyed. Even though that happens, Elrond finally comes with some aid from Galadriel, and they're able to kind of take away those gains that the Witch King had made, even though, of course, Arthodyne is weaker now. Fun little side note, it is around this time that the Hobbits, which at this point are called the Store Hobbits, actually move into, they migrate into the area that becomes the Shire. So that's a little fun fact. Factoid, they were living in sort of kind of at the at the feet of the Misty Mountains on the western side. And the area had become infested essentially with evil men and creatures from Angmar. So to get away from all of the war, they move west uh, further into Arthodyne and take up residence into what eventually becomes the Shire. All right, now because of the aid of Elrond and Galadriel and the working together of Arthodyne with Círdan, the shipwright, they're able to establish kind of this this stalemate, this this sort of time of, of no fighting. And they have consolidated themselves and set up a battle line. So they're in a good position, but something really 
bad happens. During the reign of Argaleb II, which is the next king, a mysterious plague comes from the east, which of course we know was concocted by Sauron in his guise as the necromancer. He sends out this plague, which sweeps across the land, and it depopulates a lot of Arnor. Uh, it doesn't affect Arnor as bad as it does Gondor. Now, the, this plague really hit Gondor hard, but it does take out a huge swath of people in Cardolan, which is now the southern section of Arnor, that Arthodyne draws a lot of resources and population from. So this has really negatively affected the men of the north. So if you remember what I said before, the Barrow Downs, that's where uh, Frodo and the gang, they get they get stuck in the downs because that Barrow White attacks them and then Tom Bombadil has to save them. Listen to my Tom Bombadil podcast if you have not already. That's where this location is. But at this point, its name is actually Turngorthad. Now, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but this place, Turngorthad, where the princes and kings of Arnor are buried. This is not called Barrow Downs yet, but this is where they are buried. So it's a, it's a very sacred place to the men of the north. Now, just, uh, I've touched on this before. I think I touched on it in the Tom Bombadil podcast, but this is such an interesting place, This this these burial mounds that exist here, because it actually, the reason why the men of Arnor, the reason why the Numenorean exiles started burying their important people here in the first place is because it actually is part of the history of the men of the First Age, of the three houses of the Edine, before they crossed over the mountains into Beleriand, they lived in this area that now uh, that now makes up Arnor. And this is where they buried their dead. So when the Numenorean exiles arrived there, it was already something that they saw as sacred to the history of men as a whole. So it's, it's a really cool part of Middle-earth, and it has... The area and the population of people who would maintain this, this, these sacred places, they've been depopulated because of this disease that Sauron has sent out over the land. So, because it becomes hugely depopulated, the Witch King decides that he is going to desecrate this area. He knows that this place is very important to the men of the North. He knows that it would be a huge effect on morale if something were to happen to this sacred area. So he, what he does is he sends this army of evil spirits from Angmar, these, these creatures that will eventually become the Barrow Whites, the Barrow White that attacks Frodo in the future. And we don't know where these evil spirits fit in the legendarium, right? We're not sure if they are, you know, the spirits of orcs or um, some kind of lesser beings that don't really fit well into the spiritual hierarchy of Middle-earth. You know, we don't know what kind of spirits these are. We just know that they are evil. And there's there's a lot of those in, in Middle-earth, these kind of spiritual enigmas, right? I feel like Ungoliant and Tom Bombadil are, are great examples of those. So we have these spirits that the Witch King sends to to make this place evil. This, this hallowed ground that the men of, of the North have been burying their dead at. And this is, like I said, this is what makes the Barrow Whites. And this is why this place eventually 
uh, becomes called the the Barrow Downs, which is a, a much creepier and less hollowed name than Tyrion Gorthad, which I sh- wish I wrote down the definition for. Um, I, I don't know it, but that's basically, it was Tern Gorthad, and then it becomes the Barrow Downs, because now it is a desecrated place where these evil spirits walk. And it actually, so if you, if you, the story with where Tom Bombadil rescues Frodo from the Barrow Down, it actually is said that Frodo was in the Barrow of the last prince of Cardolan. So interesting factoid there is they were in a very important person's burial mound, which had become infected with these evil spirits from Angmar. So at this point, the kingdom of Arthodyne is in very bad shape. Their sacred place in the south in Cardolan has been desecrated. They are losing territory. The The disease has just ravaged a lot of their population pool in the south. And it's at this point in the line of kings in the appendices where we don't get a lot of information. It, there's three kings, Arvigil, Arvaleg II, and Erival. And all we can really assume is that these are three kings who are ruling over a rapidly deteriorating kingdom. And then we reach a king by the name of Arafant, and he becomes king in the year 1964. Now, this gentleman has a seer or uh, a prophet, uh, basically a a counselor, if you will, uh, by the name of Malbeth. Now, I've Talked about Malbeth on other podcasts, but if you haven't heard this name before or whatever, I will get into a a little brief description of this prophecy that is laid out not just over this King Arafant's son, but also prophecies over Aragorn in the future. Because Malbeth the seer basically predicts not only the downfall of Arnor, but the recovery of Aragorn, who will become you know, King Elisar over a united kingdom. But so Arafant has a son and Arafant is struggling. He knows that his kingdom is on its last leg. All it'll really take is one more assault from Angmar to really push things over the edge. But at this point, he's trying to figure out what to name his son. And this counselor, Malbeth, comes to him and says this, Arvidui, you shall call him. Now, Arvidui literally means last king in the language of Westerness. Arvidui, you shall call him, for he will be the last in Arthodyne, though a choice will come to the Dunedine, and if they take the one that seems less hopeful, then your son will change his name and become king of a great realm. If not, then much sorrow and many lives of men shall pass until the Dunedine arise and are united again. So basically, this prophet is predicting that, you know, either your son becomes the king of a reunited Gondor and Arnor, or your son will be the last king in the north for a very long time. So he's basically predicting two outcomes. One is very good and one is very bad. The good thing to happen would be that his son becomes king of a reunited Arnor and Gondor. And he tries to do so. And we'll see how that goes for him in a second. And again, I've touched on this in other podcast episodes, but I'll give you a brief summary of what happens. This this king's son, Arvidui, he um, marries. And again, also what's happening at this time is the southern kingdom of Gondor, which has long been estranged from the northern kingdom. You know, they are, they're very far away from one another. So there isn't a whole lot of 
diplomatic coordination happening. You know, there's traitors that go from kingdom to kingdom, but Gondor is not helping the North with their problems, and the North is not helping Gondor with their problems. But but communication gets reestablished at this point between King Andoher and the House of Arvadui at, at this point. And what actually ends up happening is Arvadui marries King Andoher's daughter, Furiel. So Arvadui, the this guy who is supposed to be the last in Arthodyne in the north, he marries a princess of Gondor. So the two houses are united again in communication, in diplomacy, and by bloodline. And this happens, of course, because um, I, I believe King Andoher basically notices that there's a lot of evil going on in the world. And he believes that all of the evil is coordinated and united and trying to undermine the kingdoms of men. So he seeks to establish, and and King Andoher is in Gondor, he seeks to establish a connection with the northern kingdom, the northern realm again, because he wants to make men stronger in order to resist this evil. So he marries his daughter off to Arvadui in the north. His daughter's name is Furiel. Now, what happens to King Andoher in the south? Try to keep up. I know there's a lot going on. But King Andoher in Gondor and his sons are wiped out. His whole bloodline, the entire line of King Andoher in the south is wiped out in one battle against the Easterlings, a, um, a very particular faction of the Easterlings actually called the Wayne Riders. So they're wiped out in this battle. And it's at this point that Arvadui in the north... Remember the prophecy, he's supposed to maybe unite the kingdoms again. He sees an opportunity here, right? He's like, okay, King Andoher and all of his sons are dead. I'm married to Furiel, Andoher's daughter. So, via Furiel, we as a married couple can lay claim to both the kingdom of Arnor and the kingdom of Gondor. And both kingdoms shall pass on to our son. So he tries to stake this claim via his wife and not just via his wife, but also as an heir of Isildur. He believes that there's claim as an heir of Isildur because Isildur was always meant to be the high king of both kingdoms. So he sends this claim letter to the ruling steward of Gondor at the time and Basically, via an effort by the steward, they, they reject this claim of the northern kingdom over the southern kingdom. They say that Arvadui is, he's an heir of Isildur. The heirs of Anarion are supposed to be ruling in the south, so he has no claim. And they refuse to acknowledge Furiel's claim over Gondor because... Gondor, at this point, has not been practicing the Numenorean law of allowing females to uh, take up the throne if their father dies and a girl was born first. So they reject Arvadui's claim. So Arvadui fails at this. And instead of the Gondorian throne being given to Arvadui, who has a much more powerful claim, right, as an heir, he's a direct heir to Isildur. His wife is the daughter of the last Gondorian king. Uh, They reject this claim because they don't want to be ruled by a man from the north. And they give it to a gentleman by the name of Ernil who has a much weaker claim, but he is related to the royal house. He's a a general in the Gondorian army, and he had just recently won a great victory against the Wayne Riders. So they decide to give it to this war hero as opposed to giving it to 
the person that they should have given it to, uh, that would have united the two kingdoms of men. Despite having a weaker claim, this King Ernil, he's he's a, a noble man. He wants the uh, the kingdoms of men to be strong, and he recognizes the nobility of his, you know, Dunedain brothers in the north. So he reaches out to Arvadui and says, hey, you know, I'm sorry they rejected your claim and gave it to me. However, I want our two kingdoms to be friends. You know, we are essentially kin, so we should work together to beat the evil in this world. And yeah, so that was that was the result there of this prophecy. And, you know, the prophecy fails. So Arvadui is unable to unite the two kingdoms. You know, we know that these references that we get to a united kingdom in the future from Malbeth the Seer is actually referencing, it must be referencing Aragorn, right? Because it doesn't happen until then. So that was a little sidetrack there that involves kind of what's going on in Gondor. But um, there's that. So Arvadui fails. So clearly he is, he's going to, he's going to lose. And the Northern Kingdom is going to be destroyed. All right, so now we come to it. Arvadui, he has failed in his bid to try and become king of a united Arnor and Gondor. So he's left to kind of stand alone, even though the king of Gondor has promised aid if he should need it. The Witch King attacks again, and this is a huge all-out assault. They go straight for the capital, and the capital of Arthodyne falls. So Arvadui has now is now in full retreat, and he essentially at this point doesn't have a kingdom to rule. He's like Alfred the Great, you know, hiding in in the swamps at this point. His capital has been taken, and unlike Alfred, he's not going to recover his kingdom. So he is in full retreat. The Witch King it, it has it's a total victory. The capital of the north falls, and he drives the retreating men of Arnor across the Loon, over into the elven lands of Linden. They're in full retreat. Arvadui's sons go further into Linden, and I believe they, they take refuge with the elves. And then uh, Arvadui himself, he actually flees north. And he is hiding from the Witch King in some old abandoned dwarven mines. And he hides out there for a little bit until he essentially runs out of food. And at this point, it's winter, so it's very cold. There's kind of like a need for him to to leave and go find food and find shelter somewhere. And he takes shelter with... He continues to flee north from the Witch King, and he takes shelter with the Losoth men. Now, it is said that the Losoth men... And if you look at a map of Middle-earth, there's this weird hooked bay kind of up in the northwest area. This is around where the Losoth men live. If you can imagine kind of like um, Eskimo people, you know, this is this is where they take up residence. And Arvadui flees to these mysterious men who don't really have anything to do with the expanded world. It's said that these Losoth men were descended from men who were accustomed to the bitter cold and cursed lands of Morgoth. So it doesn't necessarily specify whether these were descendants of men who served Morgoth. However, we can maybe assume that they did because... If you were men who were accustomed to the lands of Morgoth, then more likely than not, these men were in service to Morgoth. However, these Losoth men take pity on Arvadui, and they take him in, against their will, of course, because these men of the north, they really fear the Witch King in a, in a very intimate way, because they are, you know, at 
they're close to Angmar, so they have experienced the power of the Witch King, and they're afraid of him. They don't want to take Arvadui in, but they do it anyway. So clearly, if their ancestors were serving Morgoth, they are very far displaced from the, the thinking of those folks. Now, at some point before his departure, uh, Arvadui was able to get word to his sons that he was fleeing northward. So Arvadui's sons kind of plead with Círdan the shipwright um, at the Grey Havens to send send a ship, send a ship into the north and find these Losoth tribes where our father is currently taking shelter from the Witch King. We need to get them out of there because they're so far north at this point and they had to go in that direction that walking back down the way they came is impossible because winter has set in and they would die out in the cold. So what they need is a ship to kind of come into that bay in the north and rescue them. And Círdan decides to do so. He sends this uh, this ship and the ship arrives and the Losoth people are kind of enamored with it, you know, because they've never seen, they're used to dealing with the small little boats that they go fishing with. They have never seen a great elven vessel like this from the Grey Haven. So they're kind of enamored with it and they walk Arvadui out, you know, into the bay to kind of like go greet this ship as it comes in. Now, they get to the ship and Arvadui, you know, explains to them like, okay, thank you for sheltering me. I'm going to leave right now. I'm going to get on this ship and I'm going to go. And the people of the Losoth are, are wise to what happens in these parts. This is the month of March. This ship arrives in the month of March and Arvadui is, he wants to get out of here as soon as possible and get down to the south, get down to his sons, maybe, maybe trying to mount some kind of resistance. So he's in a hurry to leave. But the Losoth men, um, they basically, Basically, they say that it's not a good idea. They plead with Arvadui to wait until summer. Like, let these these people who have come here to rescue you, let them dock their ship and just, just stay here with us until summer because it's March right now and the Witch King's power is stronger in the colder months. So just wait until his, wait until summer. The Witch King's power wanes in the summer. And and we just feel like something, his his arm reaches far in the winter. And we feel like something really bad is going to happen to this ship if you leave right now. And Arvadui uh, ignores these pleas because he's in a hurry to get out of there. He does not want to spend any more time with these smelly men from the north anymore. So he says, no, I'm going to leave. However, uh, I really appreciate you taking care of me and I'm going to give you this, you know, as a reward, you can ransom this for, you know, food or, or trinkets from the South, whatever you want later. I'm going to give you this now and you can ransom it later. And what he gives to the Losoth men as a reward for sheltering him during this time is the Ring of Barahir. Now... For those of you who don't know what that is, I've talked about it before in other podcasts, but the Ring of Barahir is something that has been passed down in generations of the Edine from the Silmarillion, and eventually it is given to Aragorn. It is a very important ring. I'm not going to get into, you know, all of the lore behind it right now, but just know that it's important. And the men of the North need to get it back at some point. Uh, but he gives him this ring, and it's a ring that's ends up on Aragorn's finger eventually. And what happens is he he gets on this boat to depart and a really harsh northern winter storm sets in and it destroys the boat. It sinks the boat. Arvadui is killed. The rescuers that Círdan the shipwright sent up from the north, probably a bunch of elves, they all die. Everybody dies in this storm and 
everything that Arvadui was carrying, you know, himself being the last king and uh, the two Palantirs. I, I, I believe he had two Palantiri and, and they both, they're lost forever. They sink into the ocean and he dies. So the last king of Arthodyne in the north perishes and his sons basically just take refuge in Linden with the elves. Now his sons, uh, I guess I'll I'll get into that after. But his sons, you know, they don't they don't get crowned king because there's nothing to be crowned king of. The witch king has taken the capital of Fornos. There's there's nothing left. Most of the population has been massacred and wiped out by uh, Angmar. It's basically just a couple of brigands left of Dunedain men with nothing to rule over. So Arvidui's sons are, are left with no kingdom to be crowned king of, and the northern kingdom is destroyed. And this help that the Gondorian king has promised, you know, it, it doesn't arrive. It, it doesn't arrive before the kingdom is wiped out. However, it is on its way. It just comes too late. So Arnil, when he promised, I want our two kingdoms to help each other and maintain friendship, I'll send aid if you need it. He fully intended to keep that promise. He just didn't get there in time. Because word had gotten to Gondor as the Witch King was attacking again before he took the capital that they needed reinforcements. They just didn't arrive in time, unfortunately. But even though the Northern Kingdom is destroyed, the Angmar Wars are not done yet, right? Because the problem of Angmar still has to be dealt with. So what happens is, is this, the King of Gondor had sent reinforcements and, you know, the Northern Kingdom gets destroyed. They don't make it there in time. But finally, this huge Gondorian fleet arrives in the Grey Havens. And it says that the, the, you know, the people of the North were like enamored by this fleet because they had not seen, you know, this kind of level of, of force at all. The Northern Kingdom had been dealing with such scarce resources because they've been at war for so long that they have not seen a force like this on, on such grand scale. But Tolkien goes out of the way to tell us that this, you know, these reinforcements that come from Gondor is actually a very, it's a very small contingent of the Gondorian army. So it just goes to show how powerful Gondor is at this time, that they're able to send a relief force that's essentially like, oh, this is not, I mean, it would suck to lose them all, but this is just a small portion of all of the power that we have. So interesting factoid there. But this force arrives, and this force is actually led by the prince of Gondor, Ernor, the son of Ernil. He, Ernil is the king in Gondor, the prince Ernor arrives, and he decides that he is going to take back the old capital of the north, Fornost. He's going to march on Fornost, and he arrives in the Grey Havens, and Círdan sees this force, and Círdan decides, you know what, I'm going to put together a force that I can, you know, made up of anybody who will join and we'll we'll join you in your march on the capital so now you have you know elves working with men again i believe a contingent of hobbits goes with them as well and they lay siege to the old capital of arnor fornost and the witch king at this point has taken up the throne of fornost essentially claiming himself the king of the north he's sitting in fornost now as the ruler of the people of the north that has displaced the northern kingdom of arnor and he sees this relief force 
from Gondor and Círdan coming towards Fornost and in his arrogance because he's won so many great victories by this point he decides to ride out and meet them rather than wait out a siege inside Fornost because he's feeling good at this point and he's crushed completely underestimated this force that descends upon him and he flees you know he takes like a small contingent or or bodyguard and just dips out because this force of Gondor and elves and hobbits and whoever else in the north that wanted to join in they overwhelm him in his arrogance you know he should have just remained inside the fortress so they take back Fornost which at this point I mean it's it's been mostly destroyed. You know, it's not going to be revived as a great city of men again. It's just essentially going to be ruins. But they're able to drive the Witch King back out of the north. And he tries to escape to his old capital in Angmar, Karn Doom. However, he is intercepted by another force of elves led by Glorfindel coming from Rivendell. And Ernor the prince of Gondor, he meets up with Glorfindel's forces from Rivendell and they're, they they both have cavalry and they're chasing the Witch King into the north and they smash the remainder of his forces, completely destroy everyone he had with him down to the last man. So it's just the Witch King and his horse at this point facing this prince of Gondor and Glorfindel. Now, I've read, you know, this before on other... I believe, on, a, on another episode that I did. But I want to read it again because it's such a fascinating sequence that takes place. And it's it's important for the lore. You know, this, this goes into the Witch King's entire story. So I'm just going to read directly from the book. Uh, then so utterly was Angmar defeated that not a man nor an orc of that realm remain west of the mountains. So, like I said, his forces are just decimated. But it is said... That when all was lost, suddenly the Witch King himself appeared, black-robed and black-masked upon a black horse. Fear fell upon all who beheld him, but he singled out the Captain of Gondor. So, the they're calling him the Captain of Gondor, but this is Prince Ernil. Sorry, Ernor. It's easy to get them confused. The king in Gondor right now is Ernil. His son is Ernor. It's Ernor. Um, but when it says captain of Gondor right here, it's talking about the prince of Gondor. Singled out the captain of Gondor for the fullness of his hatred, right? Because he's mad at Gondor because he underestimated Gondor. He did not think that Gondor was going to come and take away all of the gains that he made against the people of the north. And with a terrible cry, he rode straight upon him. Ernor would have withstood him, but his horse could not endure that onset. So his horse freaks out and it swerved and bore him far away before he could master it. So the Witch King is so terrifying that it scares the horse and sends it running in the opposite direction. And then it says, then the Witch King laughed and none that heard it ever forgot the horror of that cry. But Glorfindel rode up then on his white horse, and in the midst of his laughter, the Witch King turned to flight and passed into the shadows. For night came down on the battlefield, and he was lost, and none saw whither he went. Ernor now rode back, but Glorfindel, looking into the gathering dark, said, So Ernor finally gets control of his horse, you know, and rides back to pursue the Witch King into the darkness. But Glorfindel calls out and says, Do not pursue him. He will not return to this land. Far off yet is his doom, and not by the hand of man. 
will he fall? Remember Eowyn? For no living man am I, right? He gets killed by Eowyn eventually. Well, actually, it's it's preempted by uh, Mary's dagger. Eowyn would not have been able to kill the Witch King if it had not for, been for the dagger that Mary stabs into him. Now, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to get into the daggers real quick. If you recall... If I haven't said it on the Tom Bombadil podcast that I did, then I should have. But when Frodo and uh, Sam, Mary, and Pippin get stuck inside of the Barrow Down, when they get kidnapped by the Barrow Whites, they are inside one of these tombs where these men who were buried who would have fought these wars with Angmar. One thing that the men of the North were able to invent were swords that were able to kill wraiths. And they did this because, like I said, the Witch King used a lot of evil spirits in his army. So the men of the North were able to come up with, Tolkien doesn't specify how they did it, but they were able to come up with these enchanted swords that were able to kill wraiths. So the hobbits are given these swords when when they when they go through the entire sequence of the Barrow Downs because men in the Barrow Downs were buried with these swords that were able to kill ring wraiths. So Mary has one because it's the one that he got from the Barrow Downs in the Fellowship of the Ring, and he stabs the Witch King with it, and that breaks that that essentially forces uh, the Witch King's soul into the physical realm and allows a to slay him in that moment so yeah that's just a just a little factoid there just explaining his death it's it's not all Eowyn you know it's it's also it's it's just as much Mary's victory as it is Eowyn's so Glorfindel he prophesies not by the hand of man will he fall these words many remembered but Ernor was angry desiring only to be avenged for his disgrace because Ernor was embarrassed that his horse fled away from the witch king in that moment because you know Ernor wanted to fight him but the horse fled so it's almost like he fled you know to everybody else that was present it seems like he fled away and then it says so ended the evil realm of Angmar and so did Ernor, captain of Gondor, earn the chief hatred of the Witch King. But many years were still to pass before that was revealed. So that ends the Angmar Wars. I'm not going to get into what happens with Ernor. You know, that's on another podcast. I believe I talk about Ernor's eventual death at the hands of the Witch King on my podcast about why Aragorn is not on the throne in the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. So listen to that one if you have not already. But yeah, that, that ends the Angmar Wars. The result is you have the men of the North just completely losing their kingdom. There are still Dúnedain left right? And that's where Aragorn comes from. Aragorn comes through the line of the Dúnedain in the north that survived the Angmar Wars, but there wasn't enough of them left to re-establish themselves as a kingdom again. So what ends up happening is Arvidui, the last king of Arthedain, his sons established this sort of chieftainship that they pass down to one another. They are the heirs of Isildur, but there are not enough men in the north left to have a kingdom again. So they pass the chieftain down father to son until it gets to Aragorn. So Aragorn is an heir of Arvidui, but he did not have a northern kingdom to inherit until he, you know, is claimed king of Gondor and reunites the north with the south at the end of Lord of the Rings. 
So yeah, these uh, the chieftains in the north basically go on acting as sort of a, a local police force working in tandem with Elrond in Rivendell, right? Elrond has a personal stake in protecting and housing the heirs of Isildur because ultimately they're they're his kin, right? The heirs of Isildur go all the way back to Elrond's brother, Elros. So he wants to help them, and, and he does throughout their existence all the way up unto Aragorn. And there were 16 chieftains, starting with the oldest son of Arvadui, leading all the way up to Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings. So yeah, that's... That's basically the Angmar Wars. The Witch King is chased out of the north, and then he takes up residence in Mordor and is eventually able to gather the rest of the Nazgul and get a little army together for himself on behalf of Sauron and take Minas Morgul away from Gondor and establish that as his base of operations. I love the Angmar Wars because I just think there's so much rich lore that gets involved with it and I and I've I've always been a big nerd for this time period in Middle-earth's history ever since I was a little kid and I played The Battle for Middle-earth 2: Rise of the Witch King. Such a banger of a game if you haven't played it already. I highly recommend you to do so. I'd be playing it, but I don't I don't have I don't have time. I have so little time as it is that, you know, I wouldn't be able to make time to start getting into that game again but it really was so fun and you know they do take a little bit of liberties with the lore but it's i think it's stuff that does service to the lore i don't i don't think there's anything really egregious it's more just them filling in gaps of time you know in the in the storyline because you're basically playing the storyline of the witch king taking over and conquering arnor it's actually a it's actually a solid appendices lesson you know if you're interested in, in that but yeah, I, another thing too, it, this is really such a, a tale as old as time story of a once great decaying kingdom. You know, I look at the way Arnor goes out and it's a, it's a slow burn. You know, this is, it takes over 600 years for the Witch King to decapitate the men of the North. You know, it's a very long drawn out process and it really just you know it makes me think of like the byzantine empire this this very long slow decay very much a theme of tolkien's legendarium you know this uh the decaying of time things becoming less grand things kind of falling apart as time goes on but yeah i'm a, i'm a big nerd for this story you know there's not there's not a whole lot of like philosophical lessons here it's more just like nerdy lore dump but yeah i would say you know i don't think tolkien was a fan of dividing kingdoms among sons you know you want to you want to put your best foot forward a king should put his best foot forward for his kingdom and i do think that the king who decided to divide arnor uh between his three sons into arthodyne rudar and cardolan really did a disservice to the people of the north that's that's not what a good king does. A good king maintains the structure of his kingdom, even if it means upsetting the other two sons. I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you have any questions, let me know. Feel free to drop a review. I think there's a couple of minutes where there's like a ringing on this podcast, which I am upset about and I apologize for. I'll try to edit that out as best as I can. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Feel free to uh, submit some ideas, you know, give me some feedback on this podcast. And hey, we got merch coming, folks.